0: Yes. And actually, this is something that's uh, been a concern for me for well over a decade. And uh, I actually like to fall back on some of uh, some of the sci-fi authors. Um, I'm not going to pick out any single one because there are multiple that have played with this concept. But really, that fundamental shift in, we'll say, the mid-90s has, has happened between a tool, a machine that is understood to be a machine that is understood that you can um if you wanted to actually delve into fully understand and even rework if necessary to this concept of a magical black box that no one knows how it works. No one can touch. It's single purpose. If it works, great. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And essentially what I would call a shift toward magical thinking, Uh, the person coming up today that looks at their cell phone, just thinks of it as essentially a magic box. They have no idea how it works. They have no idea all of what goes into it. How are we supposed to, innovate further when our society has no clue how the fundamental building blocks of technology that we use day-to-day work in any way shape or form.
1: on the show today is timothy pearson timothy is the chief technology officer of raptor computing timothy thanks for taking the time to talk to me today
0: yeah no am glad to be here
1: so i guess the first question because this will be the question of most people who are wondering well raptor computing what is that why don't you tell us what is raptor computing what do you guys do
0: Yeah, so we are the world's premier uh, secure computing company. And when we say secure, we don't mean secure in the way that uh, the likes of Intel and AMD mean. We mean secure in that when you own a piece of hardware, we believe that you should have full control over that piece of hardware, that it should answer to you and you alone and not to a third party tech company in Silicon Valley. Um, So we started back in 2016 um, to address the growing need for availability to the general public of that type of hardware. Um, And in order to do that, we have embraced open source completely. Um, We are the only manufacturer on the market right now that sells general purpose computing products uh, that are completely open source uh, from the lowest levels of the system firmware, all the way through the kernel and all the way through the application stack. So what that gets you is it gets you the ability to inspect, to audit, to modify, and to control every single aspect of that system all the way down to the bare hardware. Um, and in order to do that, we actually did a few uh, interesting things that you don't really see every day. Um, so, for instance, um, where we have uh, control devices that are on the uh, the main boards that we that we produce. Um, we actually uh, went one step further um, than your average manufacturer. So rather than using a CPLD with a proprietary tool chain and so on and so forth, it requires you to use Windows and Intel and so on, we actually uh, decided to use an FPGA that has a completely open source tool chain so that you can um, get grab the source, literally the HDL for that FPGA, you can inspect it, you can see how it works, you can compile or place and route um, that all on your own hardware uh, using open source tooling and then flash it back to your main board. So, essentially we're all about uh giving that that absolute control as far as possible to anyone that purchases one of our systems
1: okay great so were you there at the at the start of raptor did you have a hand in getting it started or did you come into raptor after it had already been going
0: yes so actually i was there at the beginning um i was actually one of the primary if not the primary driving force behind actually getting off the ground um so uh as you know uh or as you may know um starting a manufacturing company in the us is is always a challenging proposition um so you know obviously you have other people involved in actually making sure that uh, everything's off the ground and that uh, you know we get the product in on time and things all that kind of stuff um but as far as from a technology perspective um basically i was there from day one um and i've been a heavy hand in enforcing that whole concept of what we are, and that is we are an uncompromising owner-controlled computing company.
1: Okay. So, obviously, I'm correct in assuming here that, that you are on board completely with the open-source hardware mindset. Yes, exactly.
0: Okay. Just wanted to make sure that was clear for me and everyone listening. Okay. So, when you buy a, uh, just as an example, when you buy a main board from us, mm-hmm. we actually uh, <laughs> I don't know if anyone really does this anymore. Um, we actually give you a DVD that's got all uh, oh, the whole complete schematics um, for the entire main board on it. Uh, nice. It's got, there's information on our wiki online about um, – uh, literally where the reference doesn't where the components go. So if you break it, if something burns out, um, there's all the information needed. If you are handy with an SMT rework station or know someone that is to actually get in there and uh, repair it.
1: Yeah. that th- When companies do that, it is amazing because it really shows that when they sell you a piece of hardware, they acknowledge that they're selling you, the consumer, the piece of hardware, and they're not selling you the rights to use hardware they still own, which has been a huge problem over the years. And, Every time I think we're getting ahead and starting to to get the industry to realize that, you know, no, we, the consumers, we have rights and we need to be able to repair. Companies seem to just go the opposite direction and it seems to be a growing problem. So it's great that you guys are out there and you're pushing back against that and doing what I feel companies should be doing all the time anyway.
0: Yeah, it's a basic responsibility from where I sit. Um, if you're going to uh, basically retain that, that control, and I can name a bunch of names that do that through various mechanisms. <laughs> um, uh, but you know, the favorite one that a lot of manufacturers like to use is signing keys so that you, mm-hmm. you have the hardware, you're responsible for all the costs, you're responsible to replace it, you're responsible, essentially for the device. But you at the same time, they have locked the firmware, or maybe even the software that key such that you cannot rewrite the software, if it breaks, you you can't even get in there and fix it half the time. Um, You know, and and honestly, it's not even just um, infecting the computing space at this point. We see it everywhere. We see it from... Um, IOT that's now um, coming into people's homes and they don't you know people don't really understand what that entails I think uh, we're seeing it in cars and I'll pick specifically on Tesla um, for what they're basically doing they're quote selling you a car unquote but at the same time you're signing an agreement that says no you're really just leasing that car at least from a software perspective and the features that they choose to enable on that vehicle and uh, you know it's reporting back to the mothership uh, pretty much on a regular basis and so on and so forth and honestly um from where i said that's just not a future that is appealing in any way shape or form to me um to have the technology that you rely on uh essentially subverting your purposes
1: yeah on the tesla front one of the things that i think it came out last year or it might have been earlier this year that when i heard it i was like you've got to be kidding me is they wanted and i don't know if they did it or they were just thinking about doing it but for instance like if you upgraded something on your car well you were just paying the rights to have that upgraded feature and if you then sold the car to somebody else well they didn't get that because they didn't pay for the rights to that so let's say heated seats let's use that example i don't remember what it was but i buy a tesla i pay the extra so i can get heated seats in my car when i go to sell that car to somebody else well they don't get the heated seats because they haven't paid for the rights so that completely changes the dynamic for everyone else down the road that might own or use that technology because they're limited because of the
0: weird licensing issue that companies are doing. Right, all you're doing is essentially buying a license. I like to call it, you are paying for a persistent rental to sit in your driveway. Uh, it doesn't matter if you pay for that all in one go up front or if you pay for it over time. You know, I could see easily them moving to a model you're paying per month even for access to the vehicle. But right now you're basically paying up front. But all it is, is it's a essentially a time limited because the batteries do eventually run out, um, that is they wear out. Um, It's a time-limited license to have the thing set in your driveway. It doesn't have any real value because you can't transfer the fully functional vehicle as is to someone else. It's uh, Actually, what's interesting is all all that uh, Tesla is doing is applying the very same licensing model that Microsoft started with Windows Vista. Um, I mean, and we actually, um, at Raptor, there's another company, Raptor Engineering, that existed before Raptor Computing Systems that was Uh in this secure computing space using, at the time, AMD hardware, before AMD did signing keys. Um, But long and short of it is, uh, we actually finalized the migration completely away from Microsoft right around the time of Vista, specifically because of those license changes, because you no longer owned a persistent permanent copy of the product, you owned a temporary limited license that could essentially be revoked at any time. If your hardware fails, you have to buy another one, it may not be available. Um, It just basically became not so much a concern of paying for software, but a concern of actually having access to and control over the software. And that actually brings up kind of an interesting um, tangent real quick. And that is Mm -hmm. um, people think open source free, cheap, right? Um, and from what we actually look at it as we actually pay more to use open source because of the benefits we get in terms of absolute control and the knowledge that the underlying tools that we rely on day to day cannot be taken away.
1: Yeah, you, you definitely pay what you get for. And when you're going for the cheap option, sometimes you're giving up something. And sometimes that is your rights to do whatever you want with the hardware. Sometimes it's, you know, your rights to repair the hardware you're giving up something. Um, And when you mentioned about Tesla, about it kind of being a long-term rental, I I completely agree. And for me, it's for what they're doing to me is, is like extra dirty because effectively they're doing kind of the same thing that Mercedes is doing with, they have like permanent rental agreements where you pay however many thousands of dollars you want. You pick out a car at the dealership and you take it and you drive it for however long you want. And if you want to change, you come back in a couple months and point to another one and you take that one and, You just can exchange. And that works as long as you keep paying the bill. But then as soon as you stop, it's done. You're over. You know, you don't have a car now.
0: But Tesla's even dirtier to a certain degree in my book, because at least with Mercedes, you know, it's a lease, right? Um, Right. It's not pretending to be anything else. And you could argue, hey, being able to go back to the dealership and get basically a new car, uh, whenever you want to, or however many times it's allowed, that's actually a benefit. Maybe, you know, eyes wide open up front, maybe the lease model works for someone, I don't know, that's in real estate or in business, and they always want to have uh, this fancy new car to show off. But what Tesla is doing is they're selling it under the guise of a sale, when it's actually a lease agreement and basically upending the whole social contract um, behind the concept of a physical ownership of an item.
1: Yeah, I've never been a real fan of the whole software as a service concept. But now that we're getting into car as a service and
0: everything else as a service, I keep going,
1: oh, no, this is the wrong direction. We need to stop this right away.
0: Exactly, exactly. And it's, it, it, I think a lot of it comes down to, at, on some level, uh, a lot of us, uh, especially those that are involved in open source projects, think, okay, well, we can continue doing As long as this issue stays contained within the computing space, this is our domain, we know how to get around it. Now it's invading other aspects of life where we don't have that luxury.
1: So on the open source hardware front, you know, how long do you think it will be until we reach a point where it is easy and convenient for someone to purchase open source hardware like off the shelf like I'm going to go to micro center because I need to buy a a new computer that instead of just having the AMD and the Intel there's also open options as well do do you think we're going to get there eventually do you have an idea on how long that may take I mean obviously I know you can't give me a direct answer but just kind of a
0: A gut feeling so i i actually want to go back um and kind of establish a little bit of the history as i see it because i think it feeds into that answer and that answer might not be quite what you're expecting okay so i'm just going to go back and you know without without doing anything more than rough kind of decades i'm just going to go back all the way to when pcs were a brand new thing um or maybe even the home computer was a brand new thing so we're talking you know early 80s something like that um the interesting thing there is where do people go for entertainment they went to, um, well, if they weren't going to the theater, they had a TV. Uh, they had, you know, maybe one of the early home, home game consoles. I'm going to kind of ignore that. They had a VCR. Um, and the interesting thing about that is what sold the most units? What sold the most units was the general entertainment technology, not the this and general purpose computers. Um, and that, ki- that, that kind of... Um, Uh, volume structure lasted all the way into the nineties when all of a sudden the PC, as we know it, and this is, you know, windows 95, 98, somewhere in there, you start to get MMX and these other things in the CPUs and all of a sudden this PC becomes this, um, uh, interesting item for the masses to have. They can go online, they can communicate, they can watch videos, they can do all this stuff. And to a certain degree, you get this huge boom in PC sales. Um, and it's being marketed to the general public, not to developers, not to people that need a general purpose computer, but people that need something that they are using as a tool. Uh, they don't care how it works. All they want to do is get on the net, watch the movies and so on. Um, The reason I kind of bring that up is because you carry that forward all the way to the present day. Um, Instead of it being a PC, you know, somewhere in the mid-2000s, maybe early 2010s, it shifted from the PC to a phone, okay? But that Mm -hmm. same general need is being filled through this consumer device. And what's interesting is the need... Is not for a general purpose computer. It's not for something you control. It's something that you can watch your movies. You can talk to people. You know, nowadays do your Facebook or take pictures or whatever, right? It's a very consumer-oriented device. Um, and when that occurred, PCs essentially became the domain of business. Um, business is the primary consumer of desktop PCs and even nowadays laptops. Um, and that's at, occurring at a much lower volume level. So I would say that the whole idea of being able to walk into, say, a micro center and purchase a general purpose PC doesn't necessarily align with where the industry is going. If anything, my prediction would be that you see less and less of even the Windows and Intel type PCs in these stores, and you see more and more um, consumer oriented devices that are not General purpose computers as we understand them. Um, so I'm talking phones, I'm talking game consoles, I'm talking things like Chromebooks, right? They're just the hardware that's required to access whatever service you're purchasing as a general public because you wouldn't know how to really, and it's kind of sad, but you really wouldn't know how to use a general purpose computer in the first place. Hmm. So I would say it's less a question of whether something's going to show up in a store to the general public and more a question of can we grab a significant amount of the business market share or the, you know, basically the market share is being aimed at developers. Um, and when I say developers, I even mean kind of the intersection where, you know, a company like Facebook is employing millions of people, right? Um, and they might need to turn those computers, things like that. Um, so basically what kind of, what, what part of that market can you grab? Um, and I'd say as this shift continues, as we continue to decouple the entertainment side of the industry from the actual general purpose computing side of the industry, and as the numbers stabilize at pre 90s kind of ratios, um, I would say that there's actually a pretty good shot at grabbing a lot of that market. Now, uh, there are a lot of headwinds. Um, a lot of companies are very addicted to the as a service profits, uh, which are obviously very high. Um, mm-hmm. it, not only are you paying for the service, but you're paying in personal data. Um, you're paying all all kinds of different ways, and it's it's created these behemoths that we know today, the Fang companies, for instance. Um, but uh, yeah, I would say that uh, companies like ours are attempting to counter those headwinds, and that um, as more and more people get familiar, that hey, there's a world outside Intel, there's a world outside ARM, there's a world outside your smartphone, even. Um, you know, that uh, that we should continue to grow and, and hopefully make a dent there.
1: So let's let's dig into a little of that. When we started talking, you mentioned um, about what you guys do and how it's different from the, 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 and I'll put in air quotes, the security of, you know, what AMD and Intel provide, a.k.a. in my opinion, not really any. It's just what they tell you is secure, but what isn't. How long do you think it's going to be or Because I think we're starting to trend towards businesses actually starting to go, "Uh, security is actually really important. It's not just a, a nicety that we need to have. This is something we actually need to really be sure of. Do you think that if that continues, as businesses are looking to provision out systems for their workforce, that they're going to be more open to options like what you guys provide with open and secure desktop that
0: would be uh my guess yes um that's basically to a certain degree what we're betting on um and i think we are seeing some of the initial movement in that area um uh one of the mm-hmm. things that i always like to point out is that the majority of the Chromebooks sold are not intel um they're not x86 at all um they're actually arm processors uh we have uh, i'll just bring up china uh they're pushing risk 5 heavily um now I have other issues with the Risk Five. I think it's great in certain spaces. I think that it's uh, not exactly a viable competitor to power um, in the general-purpose desktop and up space. Um, but that's you know we'll we'll have to continue to see how things play out. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are worse things to have than two open ICs in the marketplace <laughs> right now. Um, uh, that said, um, I think that worldwide we're starting to see this this idea that especially if you're a large enough company. Um, it doesn't make sense to use someone else's off-the-shelf silicon that you absolutely cannot control. That could have issues that are going to force business decisions on you at, according to Murphy's Law, the most inopportune time. Um, so you're starting to see uh, Amazon's another one. They have, I think it's Gravitas, their internal um, ARM processor. Um, I think we're already starting to see this shift, and I think that there's a there's a delicate balance here between permanently centralizing all the power in the hands of a handful of these large corporations that can afford to have their own custom silicon and actually still being able to have local computing resources. And really that's a that's a different and orthogonal war that's being fought right now. So it's, we don't know how that's going to turn out. We're trying to use leverage power um, and leverage open systems to basically make sure that there's enough local computing power remaining that everything is not centralized in these large cloud providers, but at the end of the day, we don't know how that's actually gonna go. Um, I can say from, a, from my perspective, we need that local compute power. Um, you look at China, you look at some of the issues there in terms of censorship and everything else, a lot of that is enabled by the centralized nature of the services. Uh, I think that that is uh, something that we want to avoid, but at the end of the day, as you could probably tell from some of our products, um, actually having that degree of control and local compute is expensive. And that's actually one of the reasons I brought up that whole kind of shift um, Mm -hmm. from the 80s to the modern day. If you look at um, the cost of, say, Power 9 systems today versus the cost of a desktop PC in the 90s and you adjust for inflation, it's basically the same. It hasn't changed at all. All has happened is that the volume that was being driven through the general masses looking for a PC for entertainment purposes has shifted toward entertainment dedicated channels. And now a general purpose owner control PC is basically reverted to the mean of what it used to be back when is, is how I look at it.
1: So do you think just general purpose computers then are going to kind of increase in price as they're no longer able to, to leverage the you know, economy of scale of just the mass number? Because as people then shift to, like you mentioned, to, to mobile and stuff like that, there's less of a demand, which means lower production.
0: Yes. Okay. And that would be, uh, I think that's actually what we're seeing right now. Um, right now, there's still enough commonality between your average, uh, say, Wintel PC, PC, uh, Windows Intel PC um and something like for instance a game console where you're still sharing some of the production costs um to a certain degree i like to call it the gamification of the pc because you have the exact same technology underneath all the drm controls all that proprietary firmware everything is basically forcing you to lease your media lease the games etc is actually baked into that pc because they're sharing a common, uh basically silicon so die a common firmware stack uh, when you kind of ignore that and just assume that it's all going to squish down into this whole general purpose, or sorry, <laughs> general public entertainment type, um, uh, you could call it convergence box if you want to, because that might be where things are going. I'm not sure, uh, but there's there's half a chance we're basically going to order a convergence box for the general public for entertainment. Um, but uh, you know, you take that out of the picture and you say, okay, I want a PCI actually control that can you know operate at the performance levels of Um, some of these more entertainment cured boxes. And yes, um, that basically leads you back toward power, leads you back toward risk-five, leads you back toward uh, even ARM in some cases, though ARM has similar issues. And you can already see that those prices have stabilized at around that inflation adjusted figure. So I don't think they're going to continue to go up, um, but I think that they have already risen to essentially factor this in.
1: Yeah, it's, it's sad that the price is what it is. Because it, unfortunately, it is a, a blocker for for a lot of people. And to be clear, I'm not saying that it's not worth that price. Exactly. Just, you know, it, it is. It is what it is. I mean, I know for myself as someone who's done both Linux and FreeBSD development, you know, I've had my eye on a Talos and then a Blackbird for a while. But it's like, you know, scraping that amount of money together when you know regular life is going on can exactly. be rather can be <laughs> rather difficult. With IBM starting to shift towards power 10 do you think that's going to change the availability of power nine stuff that then you guys can utilize or is that going to maybe make the that issue easier for you to handle, or
0: um, I would say that. Uh, so I'm not sure if you're aware. Uh, we've we've uh, put out a couple things on this, um, but you know, I might as well just mention it here too. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Power 10, IBM shifted to include requiring actually at least two uh, binary firmware components at key security sensitive positions in the sense in the system. Um, okay. So there's one that's required to use the RAM, and there's one that's required to use PCIe. Uh, as a result of those two binary, binaries, we're not doing Power 10 um, systems. We are exploring other options. Um, as you know, Open or Power, Power ISA is actually an open source ISA, mm-hmm. which means that we are not bound to IBM and we are right. not bound to IBM suppliers. We can make compatible silicon or have another company make compatible silicon that will run the exact same applications, no recompilation required, uh, basically update your kernel and go kind of thing. Uh, as you would for any new CPU, you know, uh, even when you upgrade on AMD, right? You uh, you need to upgrade your kernel usually to actually enable whatever is actually going to, <laughs> to let that system boot up. Right. Um, so we're basically looking at that model. And um, since price has been a concern throughout, uh, we are looking at options um, for non-IBM silicon at this point um, that are more targeted at what we would call the mobile space. Um, mm-hmm. Not necessarily a cell phone, but you could think Chromebook. Okay, this is something that we've wanted to do for years. Um, and because of where IBM is going with Power 10, um, you know, this is something that we're looking more and more seriously at as maybe a successor or an um, interim product until we can figure out a way around those issues with power tenants and, uh, you know, basically get another server class CPU up. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of where we're looking. So there there actually might be a chance that, um, you know, in say three years, four years, not sure, you know, just throwing numbers out right. um, that uh, you might actually have some some more inexpensive owner controlled power based silicon uh, on the market uh, in terms of actual product that people can buy. Like I said, kind of like uh, think of Chromebook, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's a target for us. You know, obviously we don't know, um, anymore. I can't talk anymore about specifics. Yeah, no, (laughs) Uh, I completely understand. I understand. But uh, I want to throw that out there because, uh, I want to say, you know, power nine is Mm -hmm. far from a dead end. Um, it is expensive, but it is still server grade Silicon. I mean, it Mm -hmm. is 14 nanometer, um, for the foreseeable future. That is going to be the most powerful owner controlled machine that anyone can buy. Um, until, you know, I I said maybe at least past the five year mark here. Um, and like I said, the cool thing is, uh, that if you invest in the power nine ecosystem now, um, all your apps, everything comes forward onto the new Silicon, you know, we have a strong commitment to backward compatibility. Mm -hmm. Uh, we've been through the pain with arm and, uh. Observed the pain with Risk Five in terms of compatibility issues, um, so that's not a place we're willing to go. Um, so, so there is a strong commitment to making that transition easy. It just won't be to Power Ten. Okay,
1: yeah, because RAM and PCIe, that's kind of important. For a uh, computer to be able like to use really <laughs>
0: and it's like the, the, those binaries are uh well actually i, I can i can even uh, name and shame the company because it is actually public knowledge Um uh, okay. on github literally and it is that synopsis uh for the ram controller mm-hmm. uh is refusing to allow uh release of the source code for that firmware that 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 drives the ram controller so There's, I forget what it is, it's like a couple megabytes of proprietary firmware that's required to um, use that. And and it's sitting at the most critical part of the system where you could have that firmware intercepting encryption keys. You could have the PCIe side refusing to talk to a specific vendor's device. Um, There's all kinds of opportunity for uh, essentially loss of owner control and even mm-hmm. malware to be introduced at that level.
1: Several megabytes seems rather large to me. It does. I mean, maybe I'm just out of touch, but that seems a little big for what it should be doing.
0: Yes, agreed. Um, now, I, I will provide one caveat on that, and that is that that's the binary size. There's, I think there's padding in there Okay, for whatever reason. But also, I guess more importantly, um, DDR4 uh, is kind of analog black magic. Uh, For lack of a better word, Raptor has done work with various forms of DDR over time, including writing firmware for CoreBoot to do that DDR initialization through DDR3. And every iteration, they squeeze a little more performance out of it, and it requires that much more calibration, that much more is called training, uh, to basically say, okay, we have this PHY sitting on the CPU, that is the actual physical layer interface. We're talking to the silicon chips over here. We have this really rocky and pothole filled road between us and that for lack of a better analogy and we need to figure out the best way to get all the data from this point to this point no corruption uh fast and reliable and that's what all that training does it basically characterizes um the the links between the cpu and the chips that are on those dims um and it sets everything up so that you're at your middle of your your eyes and everything else so that it Uh, Essentially, that data transfer is 100% reliable, and it's at the maximum speed that that interface can support. But to do that, I'm going to fall back real quick on some of the AMD stuff for Mm -hmm. Family 15, um, the Opterons. They actually do something called 2D training. So it literally will do a brute force parameter search of multiple parameters, and it will find the best one. And that does require a significant amount of firmware and even some RAM on board, um, the CPU. They use cache as RAM. Uh, to to actually do that, I mean it's really cool from a uh, phys- you know, ha- how much we're hacking around this physical layer issue, right. but at the same time, you know, you're asking us to blindly trust your algorithms in a closed source binary for something that we have to support for five plus years. That's not going to work. Yeah.
1: So this may be a question you you can't answer or a question you're not comfortable answering, but with IBM obviously being you know behind Open Power and from my understanding they're also you know one of the major companies behind open cappy it seems odd that for power 10 they would want a firmware blob that's closed source is it just that they
0: have the leverage to see it so they don't care and who cares about anybody else i i would say that's not where ibm is coming from um i am being careful in what i am saying Mm -hmm. but i would say that I'm fairly confident there's no malicious intent like that behind it. Um, I I think um, I think it's an artifact of the shift from Global Foundries to Samsung, okay. uh, is what I think it is. I think it's just economics at some point took over. Unfortunately, that means that the product is not useful for us, mm-hmm. uh, and it's not useful for all the people and companies and organizations that use their systems. But at the end of the day we knew this was always a possibility. We were pushing very hard for power to be at open ISA and essentially to a certain degree that effort is uh, paying off okay
1: well let's let's roll the clock back now that we've got kind of an understanding of where you're coming from and the the thoughts and the thoughts and viewpoints you have on openness. When did you first discover or hear about? open source, whether it just as software or as kind of the the philosophical concept behind it?
0: Well, that's an interesting question. Um, My earliest memory is actually, this would have been Red Hat 4 or Red Hat 2 timeframe. I am trying to remember now. It's been so long. Um, But uh, basically, uh, let's see, current technology use was Windows 9X at the time, the 95, 98. Okay. Um, we, uh, I was involved in some driver development um, for some software on that and we're starting to really feel the limitations um, of the whole closed source system at that point. Um, uh, anyone who's familiar with that time period uh, and trying to do any driver development on 9x would understand there's this thing called the driver development kit from Microsoft that you had to get. They did not provide that freely. Um, it was very difficult to get a hold of. Um, And uh, without that, you were pretty much stuck. You couldn't do anything. And then even when you could, you did not have the source code for the kernel. You did not have the source code for the operating system. And the documentation was not the best. And at some point, you just run into um, you're paying all this money for a product that you can't even really develop software for easily at the level you need to. So I was dimly aware of this thing called linux uh out there um and uh, this was to a certain degree pre widespread internet so he literally ended up having to go to the live city library and they had a book there with a trial uh cd <laughs> of, of the uh, red hat i figure it was red hat two or three or something in that time frame very early um and uh basically using that to uh go ahead and start getting an introduction to this whole concept of open source and what it is and what it can do for you. And then um, that probably wasn't the best introduction, to be quite honest. Um, It was uh, more difficult than um, more difficult to get running than was expected and honestly than was necessary. Um, Kind of played with that off and on for a while through the XP era uh in various forms until Vista's license change uh, basically forced that switch over. Um, and uh, before that um, started to investigate other distros actually played a little bit slack where some others but early on kind of settled on Debian. Um uh, Debian is everything I was looking for. Uh, it's rock solid um, it's easy to install easy to set up um, it's uh uh, long-term support. Um, so, you know, you don't have to worry about your packages breaking every six months or something. <laughs> um, so settle on that very early on and, uh, basically just slowly transferred more and more of the workload off of windows onto Linux until eventually it just wasn't using the windows uh, system anymore.
1: Mm-hmm. A lot of open source people talk about an, an aha moment where there was an event which happened that then it just kind of it kind of clicked and they're like oh wow yeah this makes so much sense this is the way this should be done. Mm-hmm. Some though it's just a slow gradual progression. Which which yeah. of those two would you say you fall into?
0: So there's actually two conflicting things uh, okay. on my side. Um, one is there's the aha moment of I can actually control and own this. That is instantaneous, right? That occurred from day one with the right. Okay, I have something. The problem is what I had was not useful for the workload that I was needing to run. Okay. So it basically took, I'm like, this is the future, this is the way things have to go, but at the moment, it's not usable. So essentially, um that was the aha yes this is the way it needs to be but it's going to take years to basically migrate everything over to write software so i was actually involved um from the early stages to a certain degree, uh at the very minimum patching existing software maybe and also writing some um finally switched over when kde reached 3.5 okay so it was essentially a feature complete replacement for the windows shell you know the desktop shell um, that actually had a bunch of neat other features on it, and basically at that point, you are the combination of philosophically open source makes sense, and the software is actually feature complete. It does everything I needed to do. We're switching, you know, uh, kind of everything aligned and toggled over. Unfortunately, what came shortly after that was KDE 4, <laughs> and uh, I actually uh, started a fork of 3.5 called Trinity Desktop. If you've heard of it, I have uh, heard of it. I did not uh, know you were still, involved in it. I was the founder. <laughs> Wow. I forked 3.5 because I saw for reverting the functionality back to the days when uh, it basically, for what I was doing and for my nascent company, um, that Linux was not usable, frankly. Mm-hmm. I mean, just not usable for the day-to-day work that's required. So I'm like, we cannot afford that. That, that I guess you could call it a second aha moment. It was a, okay. This is not because this is free. This is because I control this. This is because I rely on this. And this is because I have the ability, because of open source, to keep this going to support what I need done. Um, so that was just kind of the second aha moment of, okay, I'm going to fork this, and we're just going to keep this thing going to enable the workloads that we've already switched over. And uh, that project is still going today.
1: So you mentioned that you started doing development work for Windows. Do you remember the first... Uh, time that you committed or did something development wise towards uh, another open source project?
0: Uh, I don't actually remember the first time. Um, There was some early core boot work in 20, uh, actually kind of shows a little bit, right? Because um, uh, I, Kind of tend to sit at a lower level in the stack mm-hmm. by default. If the higher level parts of the stack are working, I'll leave them alone and kind of focus more on my area of expertise in the lower level parts of the stack. Um, so I think it actually might be back in 2009 era or something like that. Is when I actually did a first, I would say, meaningful commit, and that is um, I actually did some work on core boot for the Opteron. Uh, what was that anyway? It was the Socket F um, Opterons to enable some support there and what's actually interesting about that is um that requirement to use boot was actually coming from a very similar decision tree as was coming from windows to linux switch um essentially we had these proprietary bios um, that were used obviously on those platforms at the time and of all the stupid things um we were using them in a cluster and if you had to reboot you had to have a keyboard attached to every single one otherwise it would halt to the bios screen f1 you couldn't um, let's Turn it off. You couldn't do anything. It's all closed source. Okay. We'll replace the entire firmware with core boot. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of that's when the next level down and you start to go down the rabbit hole and you go, okay, uh, this is no different than the embedded systems we're using. It's just uh, got a more powerful CPU on it um and uh, why wouldn't we want open firmware for this and it allows us to have complete control we can boot the system up in a matter of seconds um you know we can we uh, one of my favorite things uh, that eventually came out of that was um the original proprietary bios would artificially lock you to four core i think it was at the time cpus um and by uh, enabling core boot on those same platforms, you could unlock the six core CPUs that were electrically compatible. Um, but again, it's the whole concept of this, it's licensed, it's proprietary, it's something you don't control, and there are artificial limits present in it, uh, both in terms of enforcing specific hardware uh, choices, Uh, as well as literally saying you cannot change it or alter it to fit your specific needs.
1: Yeah, I'm so thankful that there are people that not only are skilled at the lower level stuff, but actually enjoy it. Because for myself, I primarily focus on like the desktop level. Sure. And anytime I peek into the lower level stuff, I feel like I just go cross-eyed going, I I have no idea what's going on.
0: Well, my background is... You know we're talking about this kind of from a software perspective right but mm-hmm. my formal education my my actual background is actually in hardware design okay um so we're talking um some analog and some digital i'm actually at the point where even i look at most digital systems as the analog systems they truly are um so you know kind of in that weird intersection when i say analog black magic i actually understand a lot of the analog black magic but you know it's a lot of people you know uh, engineers in the industry just never have a reason really to get to that level um so anyway my you know my background is kind of in that whole electrical engineering hardware space which i think makes it easier to deal with the firmware that is talking to that hardware um it's very natural from where i'm coming from because i understand hey it's it's just it's hardware it's got to be set up a certain way um there's no you know th- these vendors keep going on they, they treat it like as some sort of proprietary magic to initialize their their hardware and so on and so forth it's not um, all it is is a matter of having the correct data sheets and knowing what you're doing when you're writing the initialization algorithms there's no magic there's no uh super secret jewels or ip held in there um if anything what i like to say is you have the perfect License dongle, and that that firmware stack is only usable with your hardware. But uh, these companies really want to treat that firmware stack as um, some sort of independent uh, revenue source, really, or or other item of value. Um, when at the end of the day, it's it's not that difficult, really, to write firmware. It's it's been made difficult by no documentation, by manufacturers purposefully hiding the algorithms that are used to do certain things. Um, but there's really no significant difference with the proper tools between doing firmware development and doing say kernel development or even some degree of complex application development
1: the uh the digital analog thing i always find it interesting because for all of our you know building digital systems on top of digital systems yeah at, at the end of the day you know it's turtles digital turtles all the way down until you get to the very bottom and then well it's actually not really it is actually an analog electrical signal and you could just break out an oscilloscope and see that it may look like it's a, a definitive on-off. No, there's actually there's actually a change there. That's a gradient.
0: And with your with your average hardware coming out of Asia, it's a it's a gradient with a whole lot of overshoot and ripple on it.
1: Yeah, and completely <laughs> different between two different devices that were manufactured on the same day. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, when you were younger, did you kind of always know that you wanted to do? hardware stuff and design, or was that something you discovered once you got to college and started taking classes?
0: No, actually, that's something I always knew um, from when I was pretty young. I uh, I actually was an early amateur radio operator. Okay. Um, I got my license, and uh, I think it was actually, like my, uh, I don't know, 12, somewhere in there. I'd actually go back and look at this point. It's been so long. Um, but um, yeah, and uh, literally what I was doing at the time was I was actually building um, my own equipment, my own uh, radios. Um, so that's kind of where that analog world interest comes from uh and some knowledge um and then um at the same time you know i was uh using um pc uh of the era that would have been like say a 486 or something like that right uh dos windows 3.1 um, but, um, what's, what was actually kind of interesting about that is that was the beginning of the era when people would be buying that PC to play games or do whatever, right? It's the it, very, very beginning of that era. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it was drop to DOS, fire up basic and actually write stuff. <laughs> so, um, you know, those, those two skills kind of went together. Um, I just always had an interest in, I guess at the time, Things that were among the most advanced things that the human race did, um, and uh, you know, raised in kind of a rural environment, um, still have a lot of those ideals with me. This whole concept of being able to uh, coexist with nature, to to own your hardware, and to be able to do things in your environment with your hardware—you know—that all that all factors in here. Mm-hmm.
1: I often wonder if. We have a larger societal issue going forward because I know when I was younger, the ability to like, get an electronics kit and to poke around and, and to play and wire things up, like, it didn't really click for me, but I, it was something I could do. I had access to it. I did kind of enjoy it. And there were a lot of people you know, that grew up from, I guess we could say the 60s, 70s, and then through the 80s and even into the 90s where they had the ability to actually tinker with the hardware, to play with it. Whereas these days, it seems that most younger people, their experiences, they go to the store, they buy something, they use it for a purpose, and that's it. And there's never that interaction below that. Um, There was a book I read a couple years ago by, I think it's Douglas Rushkoff, uh, Program or Be Programmed, where he talks about how it's really important that we need people and especially children to understand that the device can do more than what it's doing. It can do a whole host of things and you can either be captivated and use the device as what somebody else decided, or you can actually get involved and build something yourself that then can do whatever you want.
0: Yes. And actually, this is something that's uh, been a concern for me for well over a decade. And uh, I actually like to fall back on some of uh, some of the sci-fi authors. Um, I'm not going to pick out any single one because there are multiple that have played with this concept, but really that fundamental shift in We'll say the mid-90s has has happened between a tool, a machine that is understood to be a machine that is understood that you can, um, if you wanted to, actually delve into, fully understand, and even rework if necessary, to this concept of a magical black box that no one knows how it works, no one can touch, it's single purpose, if it works, great, if it doesn't, it doesn't, and essentially what I would call a shift toward magical thinking. Uh, The person coming up today that looks at their cell phone just thinks of it as essentially a magic box. They have no idea how it works. They have no idea all of what goes into it. How are we supposed to innovate further when our society has no clue how the fundamental building blocks of technology that we use day to day work in any way, shape, or form? my concern is that we're heading toward a type of societal collapse in terms of the ability to continue innovating because of this magical thinking and again i think several sci-fi authors have have really um, taken this concept and taken it in several different directions but it can go anywhere from uh essentially the society uh relying on a very small subset that actually understands how the technology works and to a certain degree they become the true masters of the entire society um, Obviously, there are parallels I could draw between China and the U.S. right now in that regard. Um, to literally everyone, forgets how to use the, how to manufacture the technology. Yes, you have the blueprints. Yes, you can continue making what you had, but you cannot innovate further because you don't understand what went into those blueprints in the first place, and you essentially stagnate. So there's a, there's a wide range of outcomes. Um, none of them are good. Um, And it's something that I definitely want to see reversed as much as possible. Uh, One of the reasons that we're doing what we're doing um, is, uh, you know, you could literally buy a power box. Unfortunately, cost is the major barrier here still. But you could literally buy a power box, and you can look at any piece of it um all the way down to the hardware if you want to uh there's even uh, power based off cpus you could even go down into fpga um and you could start altering the design of the cpu understand why the design decisions have been made the way they are or the way they have been you know for for that particular cpu this is what's required to train the next generations in uh not just how the technology works but why decisions have been made the way they've been made um, what I have been seeing recently is um, some of the younger generation essentially going back. And actually, what's interesting is I see a little bit of this in the Risk Five ecosystem. Um, essentially, the knowledge uh, of why decisions were made, why certain paths were taken has been lost. And I'm seeing um, these individuals or even these organizations, for instance, five, um going back and trying the same thing all over again and expecting a different outcome. But in my what I'm thinking is that it's not that there's so much expecting a different outcome; it's that they may not understand that this was already tried in the past and that that uh, negative outcome already occurred. Um, and specifically in the case of Risk Five, I'm picking on fragmentation and I'm looking back toward the um, 1980s and the explosion of uh, various consumer systems. You had, you had S100, you know your your uh what was it? Uh, things like the Trash 80. <laughs> you had. Uh, um, you know, the, the nascent PC, even in there, you had Z80, you had all these different systems. And if you wanted to run a specific piece of software, for the most part, you had to buy a specific piece of hardware. Um, the PC obviously changed all of that, but, um, you know, I, again, it's, it's one of these things where if you don't understand why this seemingly arbitrary decisions, like we will enforce ISA compliance through the years, right? It seems arbitrary. Well, why can't you just recompile your applications? Why can't we just change things here, there and everywhere? Well, it's because it's been tried; it doesn't work. This is the kind of knowledge that is being, I, unfortunately, I think, lost. Um, the more that we succumb to this whole magical thinking type uh, type regime.
1: Yeah, I started to get a little encouraged that maybe this could be avoided. I guess, I guess, it was about a decade ago when I first started noticing that maker spaces were starting to become more of a thing, and they were popping up all over the place. And I thought, oh, this is good. We want more of this. But it seemed to me that it kind of started to stagnate. And I think ultimately this needs to become just a component of general education because as we move into a high-tech world, there's things that we need to be educating the youth in so that they can actually survive in that world.
0: Yes, we literally need this, What like what I'm describing right now. We're talking uh, events that occurred 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. This should be in a history book. There should literally be chapters on uh what occurred in silicon valley or even before silicon valley you know essentially who the movers and shakers were how things uh happened what was tried you know so much of history is what was tried and what happened and you need to know those two things otherwise you're just going to repeat the same things over and over and over as a species and that's you know not somewhere you want to go um but um the other thing is in education, there's a strong push, and that this is something I've been fighting in the colleges for some time. Um, there's a strong push to essentially subvert uh efforts to educate on how things work um at beyond a certain level. And I'm thinking specifically by uh well, I'll I'll call it out Microsoft, right? Mm-hmm. Microsoft um from a software perspective, hey, if you put Windows and uh Visual Studio and all these other freebies into the colleges, um then people aren't going to bother looking under the hood. They're going to go, I use this in college. I want to buy the same thing when I'm in the workplace. I have no idea how it works, but I know how to use it. And all of a sudden you changed your technical curriculum from what I call general principles of technology into nothing more than a vocational course on how to use a specific tool. Um, And We're seeing the same thing with hardware to a certain extent. Obviously you have key players in the x86 space and even the arm space saying, Yes, we're happy to have your students learn how to use our CPUs, but we are not going to allow them to learn how to make their own compatible CPUs or even to emulate our CPUs. Uh, There was a famous um, lawsuit uh, not that long ago. I think it was one of the major universities where there was some work being done on emulation and the vendor stepped and said, no, you're not allowed to do that. You're not going to do that. and that's again where one of the reasons why there's this whole focus on our side on open ice uh, on um, you know something that's outside of that space and that allows the student to start drilling down further um, to actually understand how a CPU works to understand how the CPU interacts with the firmware level to understand how the firmware level, which is now another its own walled garden, interacts with the kernel and and so on and so forth. Um, there's actually another um, you know not to belabor the point too much, but um, you even go down to fpga which is one step ostensibly below uh CPU and so on and so forth and uh you run into something even worse you run into something where literally no one knows how the black box works to take your hdl your hardware description language and somehow magically transform it into this binary file that gets loaded on the fpga that contains your circuits um, and this is where I think, uh, projects like Yosis, NextPnr, have shown a spotlight on a very dark corner of the industry. And if anything, I, you know, I applaud their efforts in that space. If for no other reason than that, they prevented the loss of the knowledge as to how to actually do this. Um, because the way things were going, there was a very high risk that two companies in the entire world would have all the knowledge and how to even make an FPGA work.
1: Yeah, I've often made the analogy of open source being uh, analogous to the scientific method. You know, if you look back to the Middle yes. Ages, people did scientific research, but they kept all their, their findings private because they didn't want to share it with anybody else because that would be bad. And it took the, the, you know, the, the renaissance, when people actually started sharing their knowledge, for people to be able to build on top of each other, which led to, of course, the renaissance and the scientific and industrial revolution that we now live in today. And we see that companies are trying to silo and block knowledge because it's good for their quarterly profit reports. And it's like, uh, long-term guys, can we think about this a little bit? Because if, if we want the next scientific and, you know, computing revolution, we need that openness available. So the future that comes after us can build on what we've done and don't have to rebuild.
0: Yes. And there's actually a couple of interesting things that, that kind of come out of that. Um, one thing that I've been fighting against for some time is that, as especially in corporate America, right? Um, I like to call it burning the furniture. <laughs> um, you know, instead of actually using the furniture to do something, you know, longer term, um, it's always easiest to burn the furniture and get that quarterly report, you know, profits up, or you're you're basically short term to medium term profits up. But at the end of the day, you have a bare facility with no manufacturing equipment. You can't do anything long term, right? Problem is, how do you how do you balance that? And this is where uh, I know at the end of the day, it's up to the corporate board, et cetera, to basically balance that desire. Uh, but right now we're seeing in the U.S. a lot. This is not happening, unfortunately. Um, and I, this is something that I'm not entirely sure how to fix. I think that open source at least uh, mitigates some of the damage. But at the end of the day, whenever you have any for-profit corporation, there will always be that temptation to bring the future profits into the present and kill the company long-term. Um, and like I said, I think to a certain degree, it just becomes all damage mitigation at that point. How do we prevent the failure of one company, uh, for instance, doing that um, from spidering onto all aspects of society and causing an absolute mess? Um, and that's where things like open ISAs, open source, open firmware, owner control, all of this kind of come into play. Um, you know, one of the things I've always found fascinating is that Uh, Some people would call open source maybe communist or something like that, right? I, I honestly don't see it that way. I see it as the kind of the extreme reaction required to actually gain control back over software at the individual level. So if anything, it's actually more of a uh, libertarian or a uh, capitalist way of looking at things—it's it's an interesting spot where all of these ideologies intersect, and you actually see that in mm-hmm. the um, open-source you know community. All of these ideologies coming together around this concept of open software. Um, but the other thing I wanted to kind of mention too is. Um, one of the great tragedies of history is that the Greeks, um, the ancient Greeks actually had access to a tremendous amount of our base technologies. Um, but as you mentioned, they were all held in various guilts. They didn't share, they didn't have any way, any mechanism to transfer information between the guilds. I mean, they had, all, they had things all the way from analog computers to steam engines to you name it, but because the information was kept secret, kept locked away, um, it basically stagnated at the very earliest levels of discovery. Um, And one of the one of the key things that actually helped fix that, uh, if you look through history, too, is, well, what caused people all of a sudden to start sharing? You know, it's not necessarily out of the kindness of their heart. I mean, that's a good motive, but, you know, it doesn't always happen that way. Um, It was actually the uh, the the concept of patents, the concept that you could actually release information to the public, you know, long term while still having a short term monopoly over that that concept. Um, and basically making uh, making some money off of it um and that really uh when you look at it, that really helped get a lot of ideas into the open some workable some not um that then form a lot of the base um for things going forward and then you know kind of the whole concept too is now you've got this this um uh society is used to at least sharing to some degree information now you've got this body of work to start building on and i would say almost that science as we know it becomes sort of a natural outgrowth of that exchange of ideas you know at some point you do realize that okay if i discover a way to do this with mathematics or this or that um it's not it's not commercially applicable i can't really do anything with it but now i've seen that this information can be used by others you know and they can build on it and they can do things with it so it 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 it's a whole host of factors that led into the Industrial Revolution. It's kind of a miracle it happened in the first place um, <laughs> when, you, when you look at it, but um, you know, it's um, it's a very unique spot in history. And I think that we are reversing all of that progress and, and all of that movement toward uh, this concept of standing on the shoulders of giants um, to silo that information in the hands of a few large corporations. And that's something that we will have to deal with uh, one way or another. Uh, if we are going to continue to be a tech leader in the world.
1: Yeah, I never quite understood when people made that analogy of open source kind of being, you know, a socialist communist thing, because it seems to be built upon a false dichotomy that sharing is the opposite of personally profiting from what you're doing. Because to me, it's actually more capitalist and libertarian. It's individuals freely exchanging their labor and their knowledge, and they're benefiting from that. And when a bunch of people come together and all do that together, the cumulative result is far greater than what any one of them could have ever accomplished alone.
0: Yes, definitely. Um, I honestly don't know exactly where some of those comparisons come from. I'm wondering if some of it just comes from some of the larger figures, uh, the older figures in the open source space, kind of having that lean to them possibly, or it just could come from this whole idea, and this is something I've been fighting against, um, this idea that a chunk of software has intrinsic value, no different than a bar of gold or an ear of corn or something, right? That by giving it away, um, somehow you're being communist. Uh, that's the only thing I could think of. Um, I don't look at it that way. Um, there's, you know, there's some one one of the ways that I like to differentiate. Um, is that in a truly communist or socialist environment you are being forced to produce and forced to give the thing away and as part of that process you are not benefiting you are simply giving away your labor to someone else or something else Um, and this is where i think efforts to draw direct parallels to political systems or to um, economic systems based on physical tangible goods are always going to fall flat because a physical tangible good at least with current technology cannot be directly copied okay at no cost uh software is always unique in that it can be copied with no cost um and as a result you do end up in a different space where allowing that copying to take place without restriction may actually produce benefits where if it was a physical good the energy input to copy the thing a thousand times would never give you the return if only one or two people actually improved on it. So it might just be unique to that nature of zero energy input required to copy something. And uh, like I said, the analogies to physical economic systems just don't hold anymore.
1: Yeah, I think the, the issue of being able to freely reproduce something as many times as wanted is something that we haven't figured out as a species or a culture, and I think we have I not. think it's going to be a while till we actually figure out what the implications of that are.
0: It's also fascinating to look at certain sci-fi. I'll pick on Star Trek in particular. Um, the, the if you look at the underlying assumptions that go into their essentially utopian model, um, one of the key assumptions is there's the freedom of information. Yes, but the key one is infinite energy. If you have infinite energy, you remove the cost to copy. Um, and as a result, the concepts that are allowing things like open source to compete so well with commercial offerings spread to the physical world. And yes, you do have a very interesting uh, system as a result.
1: Yeah, but we need that infinite energy thing.
0: So, the uh, infinite energy is the problem, right? Yeah. That's why it's, it, remains, it remains a good donkin.
1: Well, I'll work on that <laughs> this weekend when I get some free time.
0: Uh, All right, there you go.
1: <laughs> so on the, on the topic of people not knowing things and learning them, are there things that you you know now that you've learned over the years that you wish you knew back when you were younger and first getting into the industry?
0: Ah, uh, that's a that's a great question. Um, I think I I it may it may have been useful to know that we would have such a problem with as a service um, back when I don't think I understood that we would ever go back and revisit the centralized mainframe type model. Um, the problem is it would have just been a nice to know. I'm not entirely sure how it would have influenced any particular decisions. Um, I think I was actually fairly fortunate, um, in terms of, I can't, I can't think of anything offhand that, uh, that would have actually changed anything in any significant way.
1: So looking at open source, and I mean this broadly, not just software, but hardware as well. Um, and obviously I, I mean, beyond what you're doing at Raptor, are there things being developed or improved that you look at? and really excites you and encourages you for the capabilities we're going to have in the future?
0: Well, I would say that the excitement on certain technologies is tempered by the lack of control and the fact that the technology can work against you. So um, I my personal read on things um, is that we're actually headed toward more problems than benefits with a lot of the technologies that are coming down the line. Now, you change one key attribute right so for instance you change that tesla to you actually own the tesla you can control the firmware on it you can do what you want i would say i'd be very excited about electric cars um you change ai so that it's not running on an nvidia closed gpu with nvidia closed driver stack and doing who knows what and i'd say yeah uh ai would be great to have in the home because it's a locally controlled thing um unfortunately most of the game-changing technologies that are either here today or coming down the line come with this, um, this requirement of a third party having control and monitoring your every move, and therefore they cease to be interesting from my perspective.
1: Mm-hmm. So the flip side of that question, and you've, you've kind of already answered it, is what do you think is something that we as developers aren't focused on that we should be? What What are problems in tech that we should be trying to solve that we aren't? Obviously, the security is one of them, and openness is another. Are there other things that kind of jump out at you? Of this is something else we need to keep our eye on.
0: Yes, absolutely. So um, obviously, um, I'm, I'm always going to say it. The uh, we need to make sure that we don't succumb to a palladium type security model. Um, that is to say that we have the ability to uh, actually write firmware and software for uh, hardware. I, I don't care what kind of hardware it is, just something that's you know going to be usable in the modern world. But that aside, assuming we have that fundamental foundation, um, there are things that need to be shored up. Um, a personal kind of soft spot for me is things like TDE. We need a, we still need a mouse and keyboard driven desktop for the linux environment um it's we're we're not doing a good job overall um, at actually creating a desktop product that has the same fit and and polish as say Apple or microsoft and it's something that we came very close to doing uh as a community, but then we managed to throw all that effort away and start all over on something else that doesn't it still doesn't come close. Um, So I would say what we need to focus on is, I think, less of the exciting, let's move fast and break everything, and more of the open source is now a mature technology, it needs to be treated as a mature technology, Um, we should never have something like Uh, QT3 as a stable toolkit, for instance, and pick on it again, um, being completely thrown out the window and replaced with QT4. Um, That should just not happen. You can deprecate, you can say new applications have to be over here or whatever you want to do, but it's very difficult to reach the pinnacle of a piece of software and, and to a large extent, the desktop environment that you use day-to-day is the pinnacle of the entire open source software stack As you go down layer by layer by layer by layer and you eventually end up at your open source firmware, right? It's sitting on the very top, the cherry on top of your sundae. Um, and you can't have the bottom randomly crumble or the middle randomly crumble and expect to have no user visible regressions in that, that cherry on top um so i would say definitely we need to have more of a focus on that we need to have more of a focus on just plain old ui ux design in the first place um this is all stuff that is very boring uh it's very tedious it's a lot of work um and it's something that i think we just are not really for whatever reason um not able to to do at the moment Um, and i think that some attention placed there then would also help revitalize some of the other layers of the stack that uh, people are like well you know linux is never going to be on the desktop so why would i even bother working on something like x you know the x server things like that
1: yeah you bring up qt3 um and my thoughts immediately go to and here we are with the fun around qt5 to qt6 transition and the stuff that they're doing with Oh, all the stuff isn't going to actually be released until the LTS, which is probably going to be 6.1. So yes, yeah, unless you're willing to cough up money. Well, you're going to be sticking with five because you're not going to have access to all the classes that you need in QT six because yeah, you don't have them yet.
0: Right, exactly. And there, there actually is this, it's on my radar as kind of this insidious, I would call corporatization of open source. Um, Now in and of itself, uh having corporate sponsors whatever that's not an issue you know that's actually, i mean that's something raptor does all the time right uh we're familiar right. with it uh we would never go back there and say you made too much money with our product now cough up extra right, right. <laughs> it's just it's the wrong the wrong thing to do um but you do end up with this situation where people are going i need to make more money because oh that's right there is all this stuff as the boring aspects of open source Uh, that we really have to pay people to do because they're not going to do it on their own. They do need to eat, they do not have a roof over their heads. Um, But the problem is how it's being done. Um, You know, I think that there's less emphasis on uh, the network effect of open source that has driven it for so long and more on this uh, corporate silo um, where you have your investors you need to satisfy and they're looking for profit off that company. And if you're going to do that, you have to make people cough up one way or another. Um, Traditionally, one of the proven ways, obviously, of making money off open source is through support, um, through uh, essentially support services. Um, Things like Red Hat, obviously, um, really took off under that model. Um, But I would, I guess, I would put out a caution flag as to what I see as kind of increasing greed. Um, And I'm looking specifically at a couple of projects, which I'm not gonna name offhand, but I am going to say that they are behind this idea that just because a cloud giant decided to use your product, um, that somehow they should end up having to cough up more money than if someone else decided to use your product. Um, I'm not entirely sure how you rationally get there. Um, You've decided to, release the product, if you chose not to release it under a copyleft license like GPL v3 or AGPL, that was your choice. Um, You know, One of the things that here at Raptor we do uh, and have always done is um, choose a copyleft license. And and, and actually we tend to refer the AGPL just because um, our thought is, if you're not going to purchase a license, then at least provide your development effort. Because that's the whole point of open source in the first place, is that everyone is working to improve the software. And if for some reason you can't contribute something back, um, then yes, it's reasonable to expect to pay just like you would for a proprietary software offering. Um, so I would say a caution both against greed and kind of against um, choosing a permissive license uh, so that you get traction and then suddenly rebelling a bit, uh, against the fact that you're not making any money off of that permissive license.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting balance because like I can completely understand, you know, someone who's developed some open source project and there's a team of people that's working on it and they see a company that takes that and makes billions and billions of dollars and gives nothing back and them going, uh, hey guys, like, help a brother out like you know we're doing this work give us something back but at the same time i can also look at it and go well if a company buys a whole bunch of computers from i don't know let's say dell so they, they have all these dell computers and they have dell servers it would be kind of weird if then dell was like oh well this company made billions of dollars and they happen to use our stuff so we're it we're allowed some of their profits.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think it just comes down that there's a reason I kind of mentioned the licensing there is I think it just comes down to people going with the the, and and, and I will state there is heavy corporate pressure, especially from the FANG group companies um, and related. Uh, They're heavily pushing things things like Apache, things like MIT. And the reason they're doing that is because they don't have to contribute anything back. Now, I, I understand to a certain degree for new developers, that becomes a snare. They go, they, they assume because it's open source that then this big company is going to contribute back and basically they fell into a trap. Unfortunately, our legal system in our country, I mean, even just the West in general, it's full of traps like that, right? To a certain degree, you live, you learn, you move on. You don't go saying, well, no, give me more money or this or that. The company followed the contract, the contract that you set forth on your software, and you just unfortunately picked something that wasn't very advantageous. Um, but you know again, I, I look at it as, I encourage people to use the GPL V3. I encourage people to use the AGPL because it neatly deals with this issue. Yes, uh, some of these companies are going to whine and stand at their feet and say, "We won't use your product." But uh, the way I like to look at that is, okay, um, you're dealing with, say Google. Google has how many developers? One way or another, they will do that development internal to Google. By releasing your project as, uh, you know, MIT or an Apache, all you're doing is giving them a little bit of extra free labor on top of what they're already going to do. You're never going to see the results of what they develop, you know, released publicly unless they were going to do that in the first place. So, you know, it, it's, it's one of these things where, um, you know, the, the GPL is one of the strongest weapons in this particular fight to ensure that things do go for it. Because especially, you know, going back to QT, if they had just said okay just like um what was that? i think it was uh i think qt3 was actually a gpl3 um license on or gpl2 one of the two um if they just stuck with a license like that qt software is ending up in phones it's ending up in app stores it's ending up in places where basically people are making money on apps that use a qt framework and they would have to pay for a commercial license because they can't use the 8GPL or the GPL v3. And essentially, this wouldn't be an issue. But it's, it's this idea that, no, we'll, we'll go overly permissive on our license and then we're shocked that we're not making money. <laughs> you know, it's kind of it, in my mind, it's just it, it's kind of funny. You need to figure out your license, you need to figure out where your, where your money is going to be coming from, and you can't do it in a way of you're going to pay extra for features in an open source world. That's just not going to work.
1: Yeah. I've done some QT five development and there's always that if I'm going to start a project, it's like, wait, wait, hold on. Which, which, which way does this get licensed? Because I need to decide now where this might be in five years, because that's going to change. Right. Which license I use. Do I go with, I pay and then I can do it under this or do I go the open way? It's weird the way they have that structured. So, I guess my question comes about of what can we do better to educate developers around these issues?
0: Um, yeah, so I would say, uh, you know, one of the things that, honestly, I just don't even see anywhere online, Um, yeah, the Free Software Foundation tries a little bit, but they don't do the best job on this, is literally a, I am a developer. I am going to create a project. What license should I pick? And I should literally have things like a, a row for, I want cloud vendors to contribute source or contribute money check marks for things like, you know, the Copyleft licenses and big red X's for Mm -hmm. MIT, Apache, things like that. Um, It should literally be that simple. It's not that hard. Um, You know, I think that we're missing kind of, I think as a developer community um, worldwide, we ignore the legal aspects. We ignore them to our own peril. And then we're surprised when perfectly predictable outcomes occur.
1: So to to wrap this up, is there any final advice that you would give to someone who is looking at open source, looking at technology and thinking that they want to get involved, but has some hesitation?
0: Um, yeah, I would say uh, go for it. Don't don't expect to. Uh, Make money off of it. Right. It's uh, it's not uh, you're not going to create the next uh, Angry Birds or Flappy Bird or whatever the whatever killer app right on the phone and and become an instant millionaire. You have to be in it for the right reasons. Um, Now, there are there are several several reasons. One is just because, you know, you you actually want to uh, change the world. You've already got a job. You know, you're you're safe somewhere else. uh, However you want to look at it. Um, and you just want to contribute something to society as a whole, um, think of it as a civic service type thing. Um, another one, um, and this is more of where I come from is if there's a way to use it in a corporate environment, um, you know, bring up the benefits, um, you know, management probably isn't even aware, um, that, uh with the licenses they have that they can have stuff pulled out from under them at any time that they have data that's literally aging out in vaults because the software is not available to read it anymore things like that you know whatever you can do to push it in that environment and the reason i kind of mentioned that is um you know there's budgets in these corporations obviously to pay the licenses per year on the proprietary software and in many cases, I've seen corporations that are way past the crossover point where they are paying ten times twenty times thirty times more in licenses for software they don't even own than they would pay for an in-house development staff to do the same software for their purposes that they actually own um, you know so I guess education is a large part of it, um, but you know to, to to a large extent, it just becomes um it's not something you're gonna make a ton of money on. It is something that uh, you can work into a very comfortable job position, um, things along those lines. Um, it's uh, simultaneously harder and easier than dealing with proprietary software. It's it's easier if you basically have that holistic understanding of the technology, uh, because rather than hitting a wall, Uh, where you call a function and it does magic behind the scenes. You can actually dig in and go, okay, I'm getting this weird result because I can see what the code is on the other side of the wall. Uh, On the other hand, obviously, uh, we tend to have terrible documentation compared to a proprietary product. Uh, So you're going to be banging your head against the wall a little more on that ways. I mean, uh, to a certain degree, there's a lot of pros and cons. I would say it's another piece of software. Um, If you know how to program, you know, treat it like you would any other software product.
1: Well, Timothy, I've really enjoyed speaking with you. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Uh, if people want to learn more about Raptor and the work that you all are doing, where should they go?
0: Uh, so, yeah, if you want to go to raptorcs.com, um, that's actually our uh, main product page. We got all our Talos 2 and Blackbird systems out there. We've actually got some cool stuff coming down the line, uh, something called Arctic Turn. Uh, That's for 2022, early 2022. And that's an FPGA development board. So that's a Lattice ECP5, uh, for those that know what that is. (laughs) And uh, it's actually an entire uh, system on DIMM is what we're calling it um so it's got that pga it's got hdmi it's got Ethernet, everything on an so dim um and uh, we have a carrier card for that too but that's coming 2022 it will be the same spot uh that's uh raptor cs Rep, uh, c as in computing and s as in systems.com
1: all right fantastic well thanks again timothy it's been great speaking with you
0: all right thank you glad to be here